The Birth Circle podcast features experts in all the nuanced areas of pregnancy, birth, and postpartum with the aim of helping women make the choices that will keep them safe, healthy, and empowered. We respect all birth choices and believe in supporting informed consent and evidence-based practices. Nothing said on this podcast should be taken as medical advice. You should always seek the advice of a competent professional for your care. Welcome to the Birth Circle podcast. Just a note about this episode, I try my best to bring in all sorts of resources so that moms, birthing people have total informed consent when making choices about their body and their birth. And so in this episode, we'll be talking about some pretty difficult birth, a little bit of sexual assault, and some of the words that we use in our culture surrounding these. So if you're ready for this information, just join us. We're excited to have this discussion with you. This is Sarah with Birth Circle, and today I have Kristen from Birth Monopoly with me, and we have uh, recorded a previous episode, so I'm really excited to visit with Kristen again. Um, In the last episode, we talked about obstetric violence and definitions of different different types of (laughs) uh, birth trauma, obstetric violence. This time, we're going to be talking about her documentary film, Mother May I, and some of the stories of these women. So thank you again, Kristen. Um, And tell us, first of all, where did the thought for this documentary come come from? Uh, That's a good question. I couldn't tell you that there was like any single moment. Um, I will say that I did in... In 2015, I did a documentary photography project with my friend Lindsay Askins, who's a birth photographer and doula. Um, And we met each other in Berkeley, California with our three children under three years old. She got a lot done. Yeah, (laughs) we we actually did. Surprisingly. Um, I flew there with Henry. She drove there with her two daughters. And then we got in the car with her and drove from like Berkeley, San Francisco to Manhattan. And we stopped at different points along the way to interview birth trauma and obstetric violence survivors. And um, so we documented their, um, their interviews and did little photo shoots with them. And I think that was when, you know, we both were, were like, God, if only this could be a film, you know? And, um, but there were multiple times where it was like, God, I wish someone would make a movie. I wish someone would make a movie about this. And, um, uh, finally I got to the point where I was like, it came down to a choice between I need to write a book or make a movie. And I don't know what possessed me to go, Oh, I'll make the thing that costs zillions of dollars to produce in like several years. We'll have fun. Yeah. Instead of sitting down and writing a book, which I could actually do. You could have. Yep. Yep. But, um, Yeah. But then, you know, really though, I, I had seen the business of being born when I was pregnant. It, it had a big impact on me. I knew so many of my friends had seen that movie who were like what we would consider like mainstream people. And I really wanted to make something that had impact like that, that Mm -hmm. kind of reached out into the world and, um, outside of, you know, just the kind of little birth world that we're all in. I didn't want to make something that, you know, the, 
the converts would only, only the converts would see it or buy it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought a film is, is the way to do that. So we'll make, we'll make a movie. <laughs> it, like I said, it'll be fun, right? My goodness. Yeah. So you traveled across the entire country from California to New York, just gathering stories just stopping and yeah so that was that was in 2015 and that was like before like the film really well there was any such thing as a film but you were um, just documenting you were just grabbing the stories that was so so actually that was absolutely like a precursor to what what is now a documentary because my intent at that time was i'm so frustrated that we cannot seem to break into mainstream media with the fact that birth trauma exists as a result of mistreatment mm-hmm. and obstetric violence is an epidemic. And um, I literally was like, we need to come up with something to get media attention. And so Lindsay and I got on the phone together and we were like, what can we do? What can we do? And this was the idea. You know, I thought, well, maybe people will pay attention if we do it you know, as like a project, you know, Mm -hmm. not just like people upset about a thing, but like a very specific, there's an event, there's a series of events, you know, there's a product that we can show as a result of it. Um, and so I connected with, um, I've been building relationships with some journalists at that time anyway. And, um, I connected with one in, in particular, and she was in Manhattan. She was like, she's like, I hope she never hears this. She was like, are you going to hear this? We're going to make sure she hears this. <laughs> she was like, are you going to be in New York? And I was like, yeah, <laughs> we were not planning on going to New York. <gasps> the secret's out. Like, yeah, yeah, we can go to New Yeah, we are definitely going we're to totally New York. We're totally going to New York. And then I had like three days to come up with like a whole shoot. And in Manhattan or in New York, <laughs> you know, and I was like, well, shit. I mean, sorry. I was like, I was like, we're going to make this happen for sure. You know? So we did. And she showed up at the shoot. She, um, sat there and watched me interview people, watch the photo shoots. She helped out with the kids. She was like the sweetest person. And, um, immediately after that, she wrote a piece for Yahoo news, which is who she worked for. And, um, it went out from there and it just went viral. Wow. Um, and yeah. And it, it was like, that is exactly what I was planning on happening. <laughs> exactly. So that was so convenient for you to be part of the whole scheme, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was the whole point anyway. You know, I'd already been reaching out to writers and reporters to say, hey, we're doing this thing. Like, that's the whole point. So first you started, the project was just to collect stories. And what were you, what were you going to do with just uh, those no, stories? So it was twofold. It was okay. really, it was, I want this to be, I want these stories public. I am really sick of being bombarded with horrible traumatic birth stories that don't do anything but sit in my email or sit on Mm -hmm. a conference call or, you know, like I'm absorbing all these stories and like, it's not helping anybody. Like it's good for the person I'm talking to, to have, you know, one more place that they can, you know, vocalize what happened to them or verbalize their story or, you know, whatever. But that could be me or it could be a therapist or it could be their best friend. It could be Mm -hmm. anybody. Um, but it's not changing anything, you know, like these stories are just coming in, in a flood and no one is building a dam. So that's actually a really bad. I was going to say, 
that's not that's not what I mean. No one's me, building a processing that. plant. Nobody's building a power plant from all this flow. Nobody's yeah, right. Doing like anything. there's just nothing. Yeah, there's just a continuous flood. Um, so 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 my one motivation was we have to this stuff has to be public. Like we need to create we will have a website where anybody in the world can see. Oh yeah, yeah. Let's, let's take a small tangent really fast because I went on yeah. your website and you have a place on Birth Monopoly where you can submit your your story and graphically it shows where these stories are coming from all over the world. Oh right. Yeah. So this is so this is another little project. Um, the obstetric violence stories map. So anybody can go there, fill out a form, submit their story, and then it pops up on the map of the world. And most of the stories are in the United States, but there are, you know, some other, other countries are involved too. Um, so yeah, so it shows up, it's pinned to, you know, wherever you say you want it to be pinned. And, um, it's like a public record of people's stories that, previously have just been published kind of one-offs, you know, like on personal blogs or on social media Mm -hmm. um, or even in comment sections. Like I I remember during my years of like learning about all this stuff, that was where I saw a lot of birth stories. It was in comment sections. I get buried tomorrow. Yeah. 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 So it was like, we need to like, you know, build some momentum out of this. Um, so, so that original Exposing the Silence project is the name of that. Um, so yeah, so it was one, it was like, this needs to be public. But two, the reason we're making it public is I want the media on this. I want this to be a part of the national conversation. So that's, that was the goal. And that's exactly what ended up happening. Thank God. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. And so now, now we have this, um, this map that is continuously updated every week we update it and um it's it's out there for everybody to see and yeah. anybody can submit their story there and, and what that and has the, also gotten media attention i was gonna say the goal of that is to just um aggregate all these stories so that then they they have weight they have more weight is that the goal of this because yeah, I think to focus on only negative birth stories seems a little counterintuitive, but what you're basically trying to do is give weight to the stories as a whole, as a group, that this matters, this, this don't just shove this under the rug. Is that what you're trying to do? Yeah. I, you know, I just talked to a reporter recently who asked me about that, who was like, you know, do you feel like, you know, how can anything positive come out of sharing negative right. stories? And it's like, I mean, that's like saying to me, like, what, you know, how does awareness about domestic violence help battered women? Well, I mean, I think that's pretty like self-evident, right? Yeah, that's a great example. (laughs) How can we educate people? How can we provide intervention? Love it. Love it. Um, Yeah. How can we help people protect themselves? And how can we um, build any kind of systems of accountability for people who perpetrate this kind of violence? Yeah. Um, and I'm really, you know, I've spent years feeling like, you know, we're just like screaming into the void and nobody was listening. And so it's like over time, it's like, okay, well, I figured out like a way that we can make people listen, or we can at least build a body of evidence that you cannot just dismiss out of hand, Exactly, which is, which is usually what happens. It's just, yeah. like, oh, that was, that's a rarity Antidote, either, yeah. doctor, um, you know, you're kind of gets brushed, brushed aside, but you get this aggregated and it goes, Whoa, we have a problem. 
We yeah. have a problem. And the United States is one of the most dangerous first world countries to give birth in. And these yeah. stories tell us- It's not us, the most dangerous. Yeah. Yeah, it might be the most dangerous. The, but these, a lot of these stories are near miss stories of, of uh, trauma, but, but luckily survival and <laughs> near misses. Well, yeah. And, you know, I- I think it's really important not to draw this very clear line, like as exists now between trauma and poor care, because these things absolutely are connected with each other. Hmm. We can't say that like birth trauma is one issue and bad or unsafe medical care is another issue. They are not separate from each other. Now, there are certainly situations where there's a medical emergency or there's a complication or there's an injury that is, you know, not preventable, that these things just happen. There are inherent risks in birth. And as we've talked about on the last broadcast, I am not someone who says birth is safe. I really don't believe that. And that's okay. Like, I don't care that other people don't believe that or believe Mm -hmm. something different. I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. Um, But... It doesn't give anybody an excuse to remove your rights just because exactly. it's safe or unsafe or anything in the middle. Well, I was thinking it's it's similar to like any other medical condition. It's not safe to have hypothyroidism, but I would never expect my doctor to completely take away my choice in how I want to treat my thyroidism, right? It's <laughs> yeah. So why, why do we do that in, in medical care? In, yeah, in maternity care. Oh, sorry, yeah. maternity care. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's um, it's super, super common. So this story, this um, mother may I? It's it turned into just again the project, and then it's it's morphed into this film. Did you do a Kickstarter, or I mean, once it went viral, did you then do a fundraising? Yeah, How so did we, you finance the creation of this film? Sure. So initially, we our goal was to create a little, you know basically a fundraising piece. So just a little mini film that we could show to raise money for the film and see if it was viable. So um, we filmed over one weekend in Birmingham. I think it was like three days straight or two days straight or whatever it was. It was like 12 hours a day um, for a couple days. And um, from that footage put together like this little like fundraiser, you know, trailer thing. Um, And then did a Kickstarter with that. And, um, we met our goal and exceeded it by like 25%. And we're like, yes, okay. People really support this thing. Um, and of course there were all kinds of messages of support and people were so excited about it. And like, thank God, finally someone's saying this and showing it. Yeah. Um, And at the time, you know, all we had the time and the budget to film was Caroline Malatesta's story and her husband, um, and she's the mom in Alabama whose baby's head was held in for six minutes. Yeah, this she, is a crazy story. Oh my yeah, goodness. It's was, such an important case because it really showed that lawsuits against obstetric violence could be won. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was yeah, okay, so tell deal. the story. It's a really so crazy she, cool story. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too far into it because I think like the, anybody can look this up. It's really easy um, to see like the details of the story. But we could maybe get into like some of the more interesting parts that aren't so publicly available. Yeah, that would be yeah. really appreciated because you can Google this story and you can see um, all the range from, you know, go vagina power to what a brat she thinks she can just boss people around with lawsuits. And it's like, no, 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 no. What yeah. happened? 
Like, yeah. And, so and why so this she, is important. Yeah. So she went in with her fourth birth. She'd had three babies, sort of the traditional Alabama way, which was, you know, very medically managed and she was okay with it. She wasn't traumatized by any of those births. She was just like, oh, you know, I'd rather avoid an episiotomy. And she was seeing her friends sort of, you know, from all over the country posting on social media what they were doing in their births. And she was like, I didn't even know you could walk around in labor. Yeah. I didn't even, I didn't know water was an option for pain relief, you know? So, um, so she started becoming interested in those things. And at that same, in that same time period, um, her closest, I think, local hospital started this ad campaign about birth choices and autonomy and, you know, respecting birth plans and all that stuff. And, um, nurses specially trained in natural or unmedicated birth. So she went to that hospital, interviewed a doctor there. He assured her that everything she was looking for, they were happy to do. It was like standard practice for them. So she switched there during her fourth pregnancy. Um, And then she showed up in labor and they actually were not willing to provide any of those things that she had been told that they would do. Um, and her doctor wasn't there. She got a, an on-call doctor, but he um, he actually wasn't even there for like the you know the bad stuff that happened. It was nurses, um, and they wanted her on her back, and she wanted to be on her hands and knees. And um, she at one point you know had flipped over onto her hands and knees, and the baby started coming, and they physically flipped her to her back. While like, like while she was like fighting against them, and <sighs> held the baby's head in for six minutes. Um, finally, the doctor got there. They released the baby's head. The baby came out, um, and she knew something was wrong immediately. She was in a lot of pain. the um, The tear she had was unusual, and um, it actually turned out, you know, so immediately afterwards, she was just trying to get answers. Like, I don't understand. Like, why was there no tub in the room that I, you know, we had been promised a birth tub or, you know, something, a hydrotherapy tub. Um, Why did they say I had to be on my back? Why did they say I might not be able to use the bathroom again? Um, Why wasn't I? Yeah. So she, so she was on, she was supposed to be on bed rest. Um, So you know, why couldn't I have the type of monitoring that I wanted? Why did I have to have the the belts, the, you know, continuous monitoring? Um, and she couldn't really get any good answers from the hospital. And um, months after the birth, she started experiencing these really odd symptoms, kind mm. of like in her pelvic area. And um, later found out that she had permanent nerve damage from what had happened. Oh my gosh. Um, and so within, you know, within a year, 18 months, um, that nerve damage had sort of presented itself full blown and she was completely debilitated. She couldn't get out of bed, um, unless she was going in a bathtub and she spent, you know, eight hours a day in a bathtub, no joke. Um, experimenting with different narcotics and drugs and, you know, anything to take away some of the pain that she was experiencing. And so it can be anything, it's called pudendal neuralgia. And it could be anything from like stabbing pains in your pelvis, vaginal area, um, 
to numbness or tingling, um, um, a feeling like there's something inside your vagina when there's nothing there. Um, there are all kinds of symptoms, but you know, for most people, it means debilitating 24 seven pain and it oh has a high gosh. suicide rate and a high divorce rate associated with this condition. Well, Cause then you, you also can't do marital things. <laughs> no, <Right>? um, so, <laughs> no, you difficult. can't have sex yeah. and you yeah. can't have, you can't have more babies. Like, I mean, like, I, I don't know if like maybe you could physically have more babies, but it would be, be very hard like, to conceive. Torture. I mean, it would mm-hmm. be like absolute torture to do and that. C-section. Yeah. I mean, I, no, but I'm saying the pregnancy itself. Yeah, that's so true. It's, yeah. Be unbearable. All the pressure on that. You know nerve. what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I mean, you can't, if you can't have sex with your husband in the first place, then that's not going to happen. So hopefully. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, so that was really life-changing for her. And, um, she kind of like, couldn't be a mother anymore. She had four mm-hmm. kids and couldn't breastfeed, couldn't take care of her other kids who were all pretty little at the time. Um, and, uh, eventually after she had called the hospital, um, they canceled a meeting with her and, um, she called to talk to them and the person she talked to, who was a hospital administrator, hung up the phone on her. It was, <gasps> like, was kind of like, we're, you know, we're just done, you know, like we're not meeting. We don't want to talk to you anymore, you know, um, and hung up on her. And at that moment she was like, I'm suing these people. Like, this is insane. Um, so she was really lucky that she was already acquainted with a lawyer in her town who does this kind of, um, medical malpractice. Is that what it is? Yeah. Um, yes. And, um, she'd gone to high school with this guy. So they knew each other. He was like this rising star in the med mal world. So, um, and as it turned out, he himself has two kids and with both of those births, he saw what happened with his violence. Mm. And cause I've heard, saw, I've heard uh, criticism, like how the heck did she uh, convince a lawyer to take on this stupid frivolous case? So, but it's not because <laughs> it's not frivolous. No, they assaulted her. Exactly. She was permanently injured and it costs millions of dollars out of pocket to pay for the injury that she has. Yeah. So they, so, I mean, so there's the medical care, right? There's like these crazy treatments. This is not a curable, treatable condition. I mean, it's treatable to like to an extent, but it's not like something you can just manage a hundred percent. Like I have high blood pressure. So I take, take my, yeah. what Lipitor or whatever. I don't, I don't, know, what <laughs> I don't know what it is, but it's not our um, field. <laughs> so I take my, right. So I take my medicine and I'm okay. Um, this is something where her life will never be the same again. Um, and there are, um, the bulk of their medical expenses are not paid for by insurance. So, um, there might be months when they have, you know, $50,000 in medical bills. Right. And that's not out of the question. So when you have the rest of your life paying those kinds of medical bills, you need a lot of money to cover that stuff. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even getting into the covering, you know, her other, like, you know, her duties in life as a mother, you know, I was going to say an eight hour bath every day is kind of inconvenient if you're trying to raise babies. That's really difficult. Yeah. And take care of a house. Yeah. And, um, well, just be human. 
Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, so she, so I, you know, what people I think need to understand about this is it wasn't just that like she went from a mother to a mother with a condition. It was like, she was removed as a mother from the home. She became an invalid that the rest of the family then had to take care of. So Mm -hmm. rather than her being a caretaker, she needed a caretaker. So, you know, like the whole dynamic is flipped. So now her husband is responsible for, you know, a full-time job, full-time care of four children and caring for his wife who can't get out of bed. So and what she believes is that this was completely preventable. Like this was yeah, damage was a, they did to her. This wasn't like a fluke, weird no, medical condition. It, this no, was no, no, caused no. because was, they held in the baby. Yeah. So and it was long. really clear in court. Um, we had like a, a top world expert in this condition testify in court. And, um, he said, this is a one in a million condition. This is absolutely rare. This is not something that just happens. Um, and there was, you know, there was like some, some clear physical evidence that was presented. At least it was really clear to me. (laughs) Granted I'm biased, but, um, but yeah, it was, it was a very, it, it was like a very like clear cause and effect. This is not the kind of thing that just happens, um, as like a risk of childbirth, like yeah. you might tear. Wow. Okay. And so, so she sued him. Um, uh, then, cause they had also, when she said, where's that tub, they had, this was in a hospital that had kind of promised, um, more natural birthing or birth plan friendly hospital. Right. Right. And, but when it came time to give birth, she didn't get what was advertised to her. So this becomes almost a, like a, so so that was part of the lawsuit, which I think is a really cool thing that a lot of people don't know is that bait and um, switch. You cannot do that. (laughs) Yeah. Is that the hospital got in trouble for fraud. So defrauding the community by advertising services that it, you know, either was unable to provide or had no intention of providing. And, um, that was something that came out in court was, um, they actually had policies like explicitly forbidding several of the things that they had been advertising (laughs) on the billboards and stuff like, yeah. Yeah. So at the time that she gave birth, there were, and that the whole time they were advertising this stuff, um, they actually had policies in place, like forbidding the very things that they were saying you should come here for. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so $5 million of the $16 million award, um, was for the, the advertising fraud. Mm. Yeah. So she won $16 million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had a friend whose um, midwife let her push too long when there was complications and issues. Um, it was a home birth. They transferred her to the hospital and they, uh, the midwife lied about the time that she'd been in labor and they let her to continue to push and it resulted in a fistula. And I thought only people in Africa, 12 year old ba- girls in Africa giving birth to babies got fistulas. And I was just like, really, this happens in the United States? Just, yeah, that happens for sure. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Mm-hmm. I, I don't, I don't understand. So this is a landmark case because you now, no, okay. <laughs> this is like delicate waters. I feel like we're treading because you want doctors, um, you want OBs and midwives to be able to practice without the fear of a lawsuit. And in this litigious, you know, sue happy 
culture. They, we, we complain so much that so much of what doctors and midwives do and hospitals do is because they're practicing defensive medicine, right? Mm -hmm. They're trying to avoid a lawsuit. And now we have this lawsuit that goes through and shows that you, you can sue for, for birth violence and birth trauma. So what does this do? Like, how does this help? Well, I think it helps. I think it helps restore some of the balance because, um, all that liability pressure you're talking about, all that pressure is pressure to do more and do it sooner. Uh, So that is incentivizing providers to do the C-section now, you know, do whatever you have to do to get that C-section done or whatever it is. Um, Versus waiting and respecting the decision, you know, informing the patient and respecting the patient's decision. So um, when all of your incentive is on one side and it's just pushing people, pushing people, pushing people to intervene more and intervene sooner, then you have this really bad dysfunction and everybody can just like point their finger at it too, which, you know, I find a little frustrating that they just, that, that liability is just like this, you know, this like carte blanche to do whatever. Um, but a case like this helps kind of restore some of that balance to say, um, you know, you, whatever your pressures are, that doesn't give you the right to force treatment or force touch on someone mm-hmm. to assault a patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's, I think that's really, I think that's really helpful. Um, you know, I, I think people giving birth need to have that leverage of, yeah, I have rights. And Mm -hmm. if you violate those rights or assault me, I have the ability to use the justice system, um, for some kind of recourse. So this type of lawsuit isn't, isn't the kind that makes, um, the doctors more afraid of practicing. This would actually kind of encourage the doctors to step back and take a minute. I, I mean, the whole thing was about like, get your hands off the patient. (laughs) Really? Well, why Um, were they holding in the baby? Because a doctor wasn't present and a nurse isn't allowed to deliver. deliver? This sounds like a policy thing. This doesn't sound, I mean, I have friends as doulas who have accidentally caught babies. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, I don't know for sure. I heard from someone who privately contacted me that nurses could get written up if they caught a baby. Um, if the doctor, <laughs> so ridiculous. If the doctor's the doctor not there yet. The birth. Yeah. And apparently they changed that policy after. Well, I know um, I had a baby. She was year. born. The midwife was actually monitoring her heart rate when she shot out. I mean, I had the midwife right there and she didn't realize the baby was coming. So yeah. <laughs> how I, I, can I, we make birth. these nurses, these punish these nurses for something they have no control over? Exactly. I mean, it's not fair to the nurses. And, and actually, um, that's, a, that's an important thing that I think gets lost in this whole story for Caroline, which is that she did not sue the nurses. She didn't sue the nurses. She could have sued the nurses, but she didn't. She, she chose not to. The nurse she sued the hospital them. because she knew that this was a policy system level issue and that the nurses were not the ones with the power to, mm. you know, decide what we're advertising to the community and what, you know, the policies we're enforcing on our employees. Thank you. So. Wow. wow. So um, what are some of the other stories that you, that you uh, witnessed that you filmed for this? Um, Sure. So one other one that people probably have heard of is um, the story of Kimberly Turbin, who is the the young woman in California who um, 
her birth was recorded on video and the doctor gave her an episiotomy against her will. Do you remember that? It was the no, don't no. cut me video. Oh my goodness. But, but I wonder if this is the effect. So I've been filming birth since 2011 and it used to be that I could get the hospital to okay my presence. And it was, but now I am completely banned from the OR, um, completely not allowed to film any procedures. Um, and so is this maybe this is stemming from that? I mean, I don't know. It was, it was just like a family member with a cell phone. I mean, but, but yeah, but then me as a big professional gets in and yeah. 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 Well, I don't know. I mean, I I, you know no what? Idea. Both times. So I've had my film, not subpoenaed. I've never gone to court. Keep my fingers crossed. Right. Um, but I have had my film asked to be reviewed uh, for a review. And in both times it showed that the provider was, did everything possible and that, um, things went the way they needed to. Mm-hmm. And we're we're grateful that the film could show. So so I, providers, I don't think need to be scared of having their work videoed. <laughs> I, I I totally agree. It's like body cams on police officers. Yeah, nanny cams in you know right. in nannies, nursing yeah. homes or yeah. like I don't think it's a bad thing. And there are a lot of professionals whose work is taped. Yeah, not just like like for document documentary purposes, but, but literally to protect the professional. And yeah, that's why police, that's why police are body cam so many times, right? Is actually protection of the police officer. Yeah. So, so, so this doctor, so it was just a, a family that had just filmed the cutting procedure. No, they were, I mean, she was just sitting there filming the whole birth and like, you can see it. I mean, her, you see her whole vagina, like, uh, you know, her, her, not the kind of like video right there. <laughs> wow. Um, you know, she has an epidural. She's lying, you know, like kind of, I, I don't know, sort of like a 45 degree angle or oh, maybe uh-huh. a little lower than that. But um, yeah, so, she, so the, the family member's just sitting in a chair with a cell phone and, um, you know, they were getting to the pushing stage and the doctor was, you know, just came over and was just like, I'm going to cut you now. And she said, what? Why? And he's, and he said, well, you know, if I let you push, it's going to tear you through to your butthole, mm-hmm. he said to her. And she, you know, they kind of went back and forth just a little bit. And she was like, wait, what? I don't, I haven't even tried pushing yet. Like, you know, what's going on? And um, he, you know, picked up the scissors and she said, no, don't cut me. And he cut her. <gasps> the whole thing was on tape, like the whole conversation and, and the birth. Um, and she reached out to improving birth, which is where I was the vice president at that time. Um, and we put together a little team to, you know, see what we could do. Um, so it was like, uh, three lawyers and a couple of consumer advocates. And, um, we helped her find a lawyer and it took 18 months to find a lawyer for this person in the state of California where there are a lot of lawyers. Wow. Well, that Um, just shows, uh, you know, how seriously people take this kind of thing. Yeah. They don't. Yeah. It was a lot of, (laughs) as long as there's a healthy baby, like, what are you complaining about? Um, eventually we were able to find a lawyer to take her case. And so she was, she filed a medical battery case Um, and she eventually had to 
resolve the case out of court um, just because it was it was too expensive to keep going with this thing. And um, it was really traumatic. Like yeah. what the what that doctor, she sued the doctor and what that doctor's lawyers put her through was um, heinous. It was really horrible. She was already um, a rape survivor twice. And um, they they absolutely, you know, brought that into their deposing. Are you, are you kidding me? No. Oh, and oh they, my gosh. They, you know, basically like implied that she had lied about her rapes before. And um, <laughs> yeah. Really? You know, oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I just want to cry for her. That is not okay. No, but that's really typical treatment for rape victims. Um, <sighs> it was odd because this wasn't a rape case. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Case. Bring it to a medical battery yeah. case. Like, and what, it was on what? video. Like, it was on video what he did. So her, her credibility as a witness, in my mind, is, like, not even a question. Yeah. Like, it's, she's not telling a story. We can see what happened. We can hear it, you know? So, wow. um, so yeah. So she ended up, um, you know, resolving that outside of court. And um, so, that is, so that's one of, one of the stories. And then another of the stories is this nurse in Southern California as well, who witnessed a doctor manually tearing a woman open in lieu of doing an episiotomy. Mm-hmm. Because this is a guy who mm-hmm. got in trouble for his high episiotomy rate and was told that he needs to bring his rate down. So he stopped doing episiotomies, apparently, with surgical instruments and started manually tearing people with his hands. And the nurse- I have no words. (laughs) It's pretty gross. The nurse saw this happen and she reported it. And and I think it's also really worth noting for this story that um, multiple people knew that he did this, that they had a name for this maneuver on the unit. And she had been warned prior to working with him that this was a thing that he does by other nurses. Well, thank you for reporting it because she could have just said she could have worried about her own job and the repercussions Mm -hmm. of reporting, but she reported. Yeah. Yeah. So she reported it and she got in trouble basically. And they said, you know, um, you need to keep your mouth shut. So, um, she eventually ended up leaving that job because things had gotten kind of hostile and she definitely was not being supported in, you know, doing the ethical professional thing. Excuse me. So, um, so she left and continued to pursue complaints, um, with various, you know, agencies. And, um, we just got the letter back from the California medical board a couple weeks ago that they couldn't, there wasn't enough evidence against the doctor um, to say that, you know, he did anything wrong. Oh so my gosh. So there's a really, term. Mm-hmm. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. She's. Well, she's, she's at like a real breaking point with this thing. Um, she's, she's very upset. She's very traumatized and she's um, really not willing to let it go. And I think now that she's invested all of this, I mean, up to leaving her job, you know, um, 
we're really looking at, you know, what else she can do um, because she's definitely not ready to just like go away quietly. So, so this is the term that um, we haven't actually ever addressed on this podcast, birth provider trauma or birth support team oh, trauma. Sure. I know doulas and midwives and um, I, I, I know I have a little trauma for some of the births that I've witnessed, but man, the people, this, she's definitely a perfect example of birth provider trauma. She's Absolutely. a nurse and she witnessed, she witnessed these events and it has traumatized her. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, <clears throat> I, this is one of the things that doesn't get enough attention, which is that, um, most, not, I shouldn't say most, but many providers do have job related trauma. Yeah. So you're going to get, if you're, if you're working in birth at some point, you are going to have a death, a serious injury, um, um, a really scary emergency, a near miss, you know, where maybe everything does turn out okay, but in the meantime, it's really traumatizing. Yes, right? yes. Because there's can be trauma from witnessing like what this doctor did, trauma from witnessing trauma, from witnessing bad things happening. And there's also right. the trauma of just being in the situation where things are out of out of control and getting a little scary. That but nobody yeah. is being mistreated. So like, it's just a scary situation. Yeah. So I think that's sort of like an inherent um risk of being in the field. Like you are going, you are in traumatic situations, period. Um, and then on top of that is that there is so much abuse, um, abuse of, of, um, staff Mm -hmm. and abuse of patients. So, um, as a nurse, there's a really good chance that you have PTSD related to your job. I think it's like one yeah. in four nurses or something. Which then affects the way they practice. Because if you're yeah, carrying you around this trauma, it's really difficult for you to... <laughs> well, the trauma the trauma it. actually interferes with your ability to exactly. connect. So when your job is to connect and provide care, yeah. um, mm-hmm. that's, a real, that's a real issue. Birth provider trauma... PTSD could be its own complete discussion. Yeah, for sure. So um, can, can you talk about, um, I have a question about um, what, what your legal rights are when you can and can't, we talked about this a little bit in the first episode, but what you can and can't say them against hospital policy um, like, I'll just give you an example. My One of my children was born. Uh, we really, really wanted to delay cord clamping. That was really important to us. And um, my, um, he was born very quickly. That Pitocin's pretty crazy. And um, he shot out of me. The He came out Superman style. So he, he was having a hard time getting out. The midwife pulled him out and she immediately went to cut the cord. This is a very big baby. And um, she went to cut the cord and my husband put his hand, my doula witnessed this and my husband tells me, he put his hand on hers and said, remember, we talked about this. And she said, he's got to be resuscitated. She cut the cord. They whisked him over to the bed. And I was like, he had a really long cord too. And I was like, wait, wait a minute. I don't understand. The bed has wheels and we specifically needed this baby. We, we didn't, is this a little bit of a tangent of trusting the mother's intuition? So this baby ended up having a little bit of a a liver problem and some other problems that we really feel like um, 
and based on some advice we got from other health professionals, um, stemmed from a very fast, traumatic, scary birth for him and mm-hmm. having his cut, his cord clamped so quickly after being squeezed. And this caused him lasting medical issues for a while. And so yeah. could I, like, what could my husband have said? Could he have said, I've heard this, but I want to run it by you. Could he have said, that is my wife's organ that she does not <laughs> authorize you to amputate? I mean, what could have been well, said so, there at that point? To like, uh, Well, so there, are, we could come up with a thousand questions like that of like, what were my rights in this situation or what are my rights in this situation? And mm-hmm. um, I think a better question is what gave the midwife the right to overrule your decision? She said the baby was in distress. It was going to die if she didn't make that choice. But I don't understand. The cart has wheels. And this one to me is so cut and dry because it seems like such a simple fix just to wheel the cart over. And if if we can't even have a discussion over that, then how do we have these like larger discussions over more dangerous situations? Right. And like what the issue is, is like no matter what the scenario was, that response would probably be the same, which was, well, it was medically necessary. I needed to do it. So I just did it. And that is a real problem because Mm -hmm. you can say that about literally anything. Um, somebody just posted in a doula group, like earlier this week. Um, my, my midwife said that actually you don't have consent rights. Um, when it comes to something that's medically necessary, because mm. if it's medically necessary, the care provider just has the right to do it. Well, I mean, that doesn't make any sense because you can say anything is medically necessary. So it would mean that you that a patient doesn't have any rights in labor. <laughs> Sorry, back to the contractor example that I love to use in the first thing. The, 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 the contractor found it necessary to use Turkish, rare Turkish tile in my bathroom. He found it absolutely necessary for the design and wholesome goodness of my bathroom that he used $500 a square foot tile when I asked him, no, just kidding. It's like, when, 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 where do you draw the line? Where do you say, this is my well, choice? It comes back to who's the legal authority here. The legal authority is the birthing person and the baby is an extension of the birthing person. So when it's inside of you, it is not a legal person. It is part of your body. You have the rights over your body and your fetus. And then when your fetus comes out and is a separate person, guess what? You're a parent. You still have rights over that baby. (laughs) So it's not, you know, (sighs) um, now certainly it's more complex than that because there are instances of like medical neglect, for example, where, you know, um, where a healthcare professional, like very rightly is like, this child needs this care, this treatment, and you know, the parents are just not giving it to them or, you know, whatever. Um, but that's usually not what we're talking about. No. Yeah. That's not what we're talking about. And that usually order, that's usually a a history of CPS and intervention, outside intervention before they can come in and medically force something on Somebody. Yeah, but, and it's and I'm not even about, open that can of worms. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 often not about like healthcare choices, like like informed, proactive healthcare choices. Mm-hmm. You're usually talking about neglect, where a parent is, you know, drunk, passed out, right? And not or in the case of a of a mother giving birth under the influence of of heavy drugs, she comes in completely stoned in labor. Then, then they're making choices for the baby based on the fact that mom, mom is not able to make any choices right then. 
Like she's yeah. Not I mean, that gets but a little complicated. Too. I know, I know. Like we just opened up this whole Pandora's box. Yeah, but but really, what what can you? So is there I mean, anything you can so, say that simplifies this discussion for professionals? Like, if sure, you, can you use words like amputate or I will sue you if you cut me? I would like to tear normally. Like, what can you or I I demand that my videographer be able to record this process for my for my record? Like, what can you say? That's legally well, protected. I think before we get there, no, um, I'm all fired up. I want no, it's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, something something you and I talked about before was the the importance of who the provider is and uh-huh. the match of the provider. And, yes, provider um, mismatch. Although there are things I can say, like you know, here's here's a tactic you could use if you're in this bad situation. I think it's really. I want to see more resources put towards rather than like worst case scenario, here's what you do, you know, as your last resort, like front loading this information so that those are educating Mm -hmm. uh, parents to get good providers. So So get a good provider in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. Well, honestly, but but with this story, I thought I picked a good provider. I I actually threatened to switch. And then after a deep discussion with that provider uh, came to the same, came to the same page. And then on the birth table, she, she reneged on everything we agreed. So I thought I had picked a good provider. Yeah. And that, and that's really common too. And I'm sorry. Um, I will say one of the things that I actually talk about in my know your rights course for uh, birth professionals is um, is I encourage birth professionals to be transparent about their experience with experiences with care providers with their clients so if a if a doula knows that a provider has a history of bait and switch and and they know it firsthand these aren't just like rumor mill um, but they know for for a fact that this this provider has that track record, that it is part of the information they convey to their clients. That is part of the information that a client is owed when it comes mm-hmm. to the decision-making that they're doing around who they're either going with or staying with or you know switching to or whatever. Um, I think that's really important. <laughs> and of course, that's yeah, not that, going to cover everybody's... No, it's not. And I just think every scenario... A thousand reviews on the headphones I want to buy, but when I will go to find a midwife, there's no real public reviews. There's no real system to vet. Although Birth Circle does have that feature, <laughs> so no real there is Birth Circle could do that. But really, widely known, there's no way of really uh, finding the best provider match for you. Yeah, I know that's true. Hard. I know. I have a lot of thoughts about that, but that would be a whole other podcast. Um, so, um, so in the, um, sorry. So to go back to like, kind of how do we prevent this stuff and how do we respond to it? Um, this is, this is the main reason I created the course that I created Mm -hmm. so that birth professionals are well-versed in their clients' rights and are educating clients prenatally so that I, my hope is we're eliminating a lot of it right out of the gate. Yeah. the way you're approaching your providers as, um, as a, as a patient and as a support person is different when you know your rights and you feel very confident about it. And you're not asking, you know, yeah. is it okay if I, because you don't know that you actually fully have the right to do that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. The, the communication is different. The, the dynamic is different. Um, it's, it sets a different tone. 
And um, I think it's really important that birth professionals are educating their clients because their clients are most likely not going to get that information anywhere else. Yeah. So, so that true. is like the one place Great. where that's an opportunity to educate people. That's an excellent segue. <laughs> so tell us more where they can find this course. Oh, sure. <laughs> I didn't mean to like do a no, my course. No, it's on my own was, free will and choice. It's like, shut up and take my money. Where do I take this course? <laughs> <laughs> well, if you go to birthmonopoly.com, um, right at the top, there's, it says know your rights course. So okay. it's right on the, it's right on the top of the menu. And, um, and all the information is there. Um, and we have a really great community. There's, you can purchase just the course or you can get the course and be a member of the Know Your Rights community. And um, I really love that community. We meet every month. We have a call tomorrow by Zoom, like we're doing now. Um, and, um, and there's, you know, there's just kind of support among the group, which mm-hmm. I think is really, really helpful. Um, like, you know, a lot of nurses have been able to connect with each other who I think feel really isolated in their facility yeah. where they're kind of like yeah. an advocate or, you know, there's only a couple of them there mm-hmm. and they feel like the odd man out. Um, and, you know, it's a place where you can have honest discussions about like what you're facing and what you're dealing with, because we, we can't have those discussions, I think, in a lot of like social media circles, like right. where there's politics around like, oh, did you see, you know, she posted this about that provider and, you know, um, there are conflicts of interest and there are relationships mm-hmm. that people don't want to step on toes and that kind of thing. So, um, so I like that we have a place where we can, you know, be really honest about that yeah. stuff and, um, and it's a very respectful environment. Yeah. Okay. So Kristen, what is one thing that we can just do as a community to move the needle on this, to kind of help balance out? Yeah. Well, I mean, I really think that using our voices is the most important thing that we can be doing at this time. Um, Telling our stories, removing the stigma of shame and silencing around traumatic birth stories and um, stories where maybe we're talking about abusive patients. I think we need to be way more open about that stuff. And um, we're going to see change as people feel free to talk about what happened to them. Mm -hmm. It's healing for the people who have the story and Mm -hmm. it's educational for other people. Um, And, you know, that's really become my you know, my sort of mission, like, yes, I want to have a sustainable business and, you know, yes, I want people to buy my course, but the most important thing it's all in the service of is getting this information out there. So I, you know, I teach that course and I do speaking all over the country and sometimes outside of the country. Mm -hmm. Um, I do consultations with people and even walk them through, like, here's how you can tell your story. Because I really think that if we can get these stories out there and get these conversations going, um, when people realize that they have these rights and that they feel validated in, I feel like something wrong happened or Mm -hmm. I feel like I was mistreated, when we can be validating that with, you know, both one-on-one conversations and just in a public conversation, 
that's a game changer for people. And I've seen that happen time after time with people I've worked with where they may come to me and say, I've never actually told anyone else this story. You know, only my husband knows this story. And I watch them go through this whole like blossoming process. Yeah. From, you know, feeling validated, feeling like it's a safe place to tell their story to now you can't shut them up about their stories. And I think a lot of birth trauma is the, the smothering of the story that if you can express what happened and, and not just in a complaining way and the one upping at the baby shower type of way, but if you could really express what happened and you can see your story change the choices of those that you love and that they not have to repeat your experience. There's so much healing in that. Yeah. Secrecy is never Absolutely. It's magic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I love that you call, um, you call it birth circle because I think that's like such an important, powerful, um, uh, what am I, format, you know, is the idea of the, you know, people in a circle and storytelling. We know that that's really powerful. Um, and so part of what I'm doing in like building a bigger platform for this is reaching outside of like these traditional circles where we know it's okay to tell our birth stories, but going into other, um, other, other venues and other Mm -hmm. places and, and places, you know, within the birth world and outside of the birth world to really take these stories bigger. So, um, I, you know, I love that I can go to a women in business forum and talk about Caroline Malatesta's birth story. Mm -hmm. Like that's a big deal, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. So birthmonopoly.com, incredible resource. And Kristen, you also will fly anywhere in the world to give a presentation, right? People can, can have you as their keynote. I'm, I'm happy to do that. workshops and just, Mm -hmm. you're so experienced. You have such a great way of explaining these hard concepts that feels, um, non-confrontational. So thank you so much. Well, I'm glad much. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you. And one of my <laughs> favorite my one of my favorite new things to do is um, teaching doulas by video, like by Zoom. Uh-huh. Um, a couple of doula training organizations have started asking me to come on and like directly teach to the students Perfect. for like a couple of hours. And I love doing that because yeah. then I can hear the questions and mm-hmm. like you know what people really want out of it and. Yeah. Um, it's awesome because you can really see, you can see things change right in front of you. Yes. Thank you again so much. Thank you. Please visit us at birthcircle.com, join our Facebook groups, or find us on Instagram and Pinterest. We hope you'll use our resources to support your birthing experience. And thank you to LaunchPod Media, who produces these podcasts.